And welcome back uh, to the Abominable Dr. Welsh podcast. Um, for those of you returning, this is our second episode, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be patient uh, with me as I kind of get my feet wet and get a little bit more used to doing a podcast as opposed to blogging. And if you're new and you're just dropping in for the first time, this is only the second episode, uh, and hopefully with each episode, I get a little bit more proficient with technology and just the uh, actual talking. Uh, hopefully, uh, it'll get smoother and smoother with each episode. I'm excited about this episode because it's something I've definitely been, you know, I've written a little bit about, and I'm curious to see what will happen, uh, what people think. Friday the 13th, um, as you may know, it's been over 14 years at this point since we've had uh, a sequel or a new entry to the franchise. That's the longest gap between any of the movies. Of course, Friday the 13th is one of the, the you know biggest horror franchises ever produced. It defines uh, 80s horror to a large extent alongside a handful of other big, uh, big name horror franchises. Why haven't we seen a new Friday the 13th movie in so long? Well, it's pretty complicated. Uh, for those of you that maybe follow uh, Larry Zerner, who played Shelley in Friday the 13th Part 3, who's a, a really cool guy to follow online. He's now an entertainment lawyer, and he offers a pretty good uh, summary of where the legal dispute is. So in a nutshell, Friday the, Friday the 13th has been in uh, limbo in part, well, not in part, uh, due to a very complicated legal battle over copyright and ownership between Victor Miller. Miller, of course, is the uh, writer of the original Friday the 13th. And between Sean Cunningham, uh, who was the director uh, of the original Friday the 13th. So the legal battle is over who actually owns the rights and to what do they own the rights. Uh, if I'm understanding correctly, Sean Cunningham's argument is, is that Miller, the writer, because he was contracted to write a screenplay, does not, in fact, should not have authorship uh, or ownership of um, uh, the idea behind Friday the 13th. My understanding is, is at this point, courts have disagreed. So right now there is a split in who owns the rights to what. At this point, Victor Miller owns the rights to Friday the 13th, the original 1980 movie. So he would own the rights to the idea of Pamela Voorhees, Jason Voorhees, that is the child Jason Voorhees, uh, Camp Crystal Lake, and it's the U.S. rights, whereas Sean Cunningham would own the rights to a goalie mask wearing killer. If I understand correctly, Cunningham can't use Camp Crystal Lake the name if he were to make any new property. He also would not be able to use the name Jason Voorhees. He could use the actual, my understanding is what we would associate with Jason, the actual look or physical appearance. That is what Sean Cunningham owns the rights to. Miller owns the rights to the actual kind of nuts and bolts of the story. So if, again, I understand correctly, and the, the law is quite complicated, is that for anything to move forward, Miller and Sean Cunningham would have to actually come together and agree to share and what that would look like. And according to Larry Zerner on his Twitter account, that's not happening anytime soon. So we're likely not getting a new Friday the 13th movie at any time in the near future, but if the franchise, if all of its legal woes were settled, 
and there was some agreement on taking a step forward. And one has to, to, to kind of think that with the success of Halloween uh, kind of rebooting uh, with its legacy sequel in 2018, one has to assume that there's a lot of money being left on the table here that by not coming to some sort of agree, uh, of an agreement that, uh, you know, I mean, the Friday the 13th franchise would be cheap to produce. Uh, generally, it does well at the box office. Not coming to an agreement means somebody, quite a few people, in fact, are probably losing out on a lot of money. But if they were to come to some sort of an agreement and we were going to get a new movie, what would that movie look like? What direction should Friday the 13th take in the 2020s, over 40 years removed from not only the original 1980 movie, but that golden era of slashers horror? The horror genre has changed a lot. Where would Friday the 13th, a new movie, fit in horror today? What should that movie look like? And that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. I'm going to start with what might be an unpopular question. I'm not saying this is actually my opinion. Do we need another Friday the 13th movie? We may all, if you're fans of Friday the 13th, the series, we, we may want one. I certainly enjoy the series every Friday the 13th. I usually do a mini marathon. I never get through all of the movies. That's, you know, the joys of having kids. I usually get through the first four, maybe part six, if I'm lucky. But do we need a new Friday the 13th movie? Maybe the better way of wording the question is, does Friday the 13th really fit in with horror today in 2023 or in future years, next year, the year after, if the legal woes are ever settled? I think one thing to keep in mind is that when Friday the 13th was released in 1980, although it is one of the, I mean, let's face it, Jason Voorhees is recognizable to even non-horror movie fans. So that image of the goalie mask wearing killer, you don't have to be a horror movie fan to know who that is. It's he is embedded into the public consciousness. He's a part of pop culture more generally beyond the genre itself. Friday the 13th was a massive franchise in the 80s, again, alongside movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Child's Play, the Hellraiser films, An American Werewolf in London. It defined 80s horror. But what makes it different from some of the other major slasher franchises, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and A Nightmare on Elm Street as examples, is that those franchises, the original movies in each of them, are critically acclaimed films. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is doesn't just have its its fan base. Critics will typically cite it as one of the better horror movies of the 1970s. It's considered to be something of a landmark film. It changed the way uh, horror looked. Um, you know, at a time when Hammer Films and the more gothic horror was certainly dying off by the time the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released, but they were still producing and releasing movies. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like uh, Night of the Living Dead, it looked different. It was a different approach to the genre. A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, very similar in that critics cite it as one of the classic horror films. It, it, it has a strong, not just fan base, but a strong critical following. And that's the same with John Carpenter's Halloween. All of them are, cons- all three of those movies are considered landmark entries into the horror genre. Uh, yes, they, they all spawned horror franchises that have been successful to varying degrees. 
But if you compare that to Friday the 13th, I don't think any of the Friday the 13th movies, even the original, none of them have a positive uh, tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics generally have not ever liked any of these movies. And as much as I like Friday the 13th, the reality is, is that when it was released in 1980, it's not, it's a game changing horror movie in that it popularized the slasher format. It took, uh, so if Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and Black Christmas are good early examples, and if John Carpenter's Halloween took aspects, uh, those tropes that we associate with the slasher, and kind of started to solidify what the subgenre looked like. Friday the 13th is the movie that kind of really gelled it all together and made it appealing to the box office. But by and large, Friday the the 13th is a derivative horror movie. It's not original uh, unless you consider taking bits of things that worked in other types of movies and melding them into something semi-cohesive is kind of an original idea. But Friday the 13th, probably to some extent uh, rips off Halloween in that it picks a date, a holiday off of a calendar. And no, Friday the 13th is not a holiday per se, but it is a calendar event. It builds the same kind of format of, you know, a master unseen killer stalking teenagers who engage in sex, drinking under uh, drinking underage and doing drugs. Um, it has that final girl component that was introduced in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, Halloween. And it kind of melds that in with Italian giallo films. That is the kind of the extravagant, inventive, over-the-top kills. That's what Friday the 13th kind of includes. And it's a bit more grimy than some of its cohorts. That is, uh, if you watch a lot of the, you know, low-budget horror movies of the early 80s, the late 1970s. So I think of things like uh, the Driller Driller Killer, for example, where the term slasher didn't exist. They probably would fit more in the splatter film kind of subgenre of horror. But Friday the 13th took some of those more ugly kind of death scenes, stylized it. So it's a much, you know, Sean Cunningham made a much more stylized uh, film than some of those kind of grindhouse horror movies from the late 70s. But he marries together components of what you saw in Halloween with kind of the Italian giallo and creates something that uh, audience kind of shocked audiences at the time. It became a surprise box office hit. And suddenly this, this new type of horror film, the slasher movie, had box office viability and you saw a series of knockoffs uh, and then direct sequels to Friday the 13th over the next several years. But it's not a critically loved movie so it's a bit of the odd stepchild uh among some of those classic slasher films but there's no denying its success and and where it now kind of sits in kind of the um public consciousness and what we think about when we think of horror movies could friday the 13th exist in the 2020s well well absolutely it could Uh, the slasher subgenre has gone through all kinds of cycles by the, the late 1980s, most slasher movies had kind of been relegated to direct-to-video, uh, really cheesy, terrible stuff. Horror in general in the early mid-1990s kind of was stale. Obviously, there are you know some specific examples of big horror movies, but in general, the genre was kind of uh, lagging a bit. Um, 
It certainly wasn't the most popular thing in movie theaters. Of course, Wes Craven's Scream reinvented the slasher by poking fun at uh, some of the rules and the tropes. We then got that kind of neo-slasher movement. Uh, so movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, uh, looking to kind of cash in on Scream's success without understanding why Scream was so successful. We've seen over the last 20 years a lot of different meta slashers, so movies that kind of wink and nod at the audience because we're all in on the rules while kind of you know reinventing them. So Cabin in the Woods is a good example. Uh, more of a hidden gem is the uh, Behind the Mask, The Legend of Leslie Vernon. But meta slashers, we've seen several over the last several years uh, to the point that I would almost suggest that a straightforward back-to-basic slasher at this point in time might actually feel a bit fresh. There are things from Friday the 13th, the 1980 version, that probably would not fly very well. The, the traditional 80s final girl would need to be updated for current times. The, the mix of sex and violence, uh, that juxtaposition between TNA and slasher violence, um, I mean, I guess you could debate whether or not that needs to be a part of it. Um, I would suggest that, again, in 2023, I think the horror genre has moved beyond that. But the basics of the slasher still work. Uh, it's a subgenre that's still viable today, and there's lots of good examples over the last several years uh, of high-concept slashers that audiences flock to. Uh, I think of Freaky, uh, Happy Death Day are good examples. So Friday the 13th could work. It might look a little different, but not too much. One direction Friday the 13th could take, which isn't the most inventive or original and probably not the most enticing for fans, is to just really do what they did in the, in the 80s and for, through different chunks of the 1990s and just make a straight-up sequel. Uh, today, we're very much obsessed with continuity in franchises, whether it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whether it's the Fast and Furious franchise uh, or Saw movies. There's a, very much a fan obsession with canon. Uh, that didn't exist in the 1980s. If you watched, it, it, you could take, for example, let's say a, a television series. It, 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 most TV series, you could whether you watched episode seven in season two or episode three in season eight, didn't matter. There, usually, series had formulas. They recycled the formula each episode. There was no character growth. Uh, maybe sometimes characters turned up, or they had two-part episodes or cliffhangers. But continuity was not high on the list uh, back in the 80s and for content creation, the same for cartoons. If you grew up watching the Transformers, uh, there was no continuity in terms of what characters showed up or didn't show up. Um, it's not like it is today. And horror movies certainly were not interested or worried about continuity, how much time elapsed between one sequel to the next typically didn't matter or made, it wouldn't make much sense. You know, what happened to some characters if, you know, they were on screen early in the movie and just weren't around by the end. I mean, the best example of Friday the 13th would be uh, in Friday the 13th part two. I remember growing up and the raging debate among young horror fans was what happened uh, to Paul was that last final scene where Jason kind of reappears for that last jump scare. Was that a dream? Was it real? 
Well, nobody knew. There was no Reddit forums to debate it. There was no internet to kind of you know share theories and ideas. You just accepted it and moved on to the next movie. Uh, the fact that Jason looked different, even in terms of his body type from one sequel to the next, was largely irrelevant. Uh, by Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, Crystal Lake has, had expanded from what looked like a fairly small lake with maybe one campsite onto it to something that connected... Uh, and let let a cruise ship make it all the way to Manhattan. Uh, no, no one really cared. Uh, the continuity just didn't matter. One sequel really was just intended to cash in on what worked the next, and Wes Craven kind of outlined the rules of horror sequels fairly well in Scream 2. It was about a higher body count, you know, a more a tougher-to-kill killer, uh, just bigger and better and recycling what worked the first time around. So continuity didn't matter. And I guess in 2023, 2024, you could just take that approach and say, well, we now have the chance to make a new Friday the 13th movie. Let's just make a new Friday the 13th movie, plug in a new group of campers or young adults, have them you know show up at Camp Crystal Lake, and voila, we have our movie. That's probably the least exciting prospect. Uh, horror fans, I think, expect a lot more today, and the Friday the 13th franchise is going to have to adapt and evolve a bit if it want, wants to not only attract it, its existing fan base, but make new fans. After the Friday the 13th remake that released in January of 2009, one interesting theory I saw floating on different entertainment sites um, in the early 2010s was the idea that Friday the 13th might jump on the found footage bandwagon. So no, the Blair Witch Project is not technically the first found footage movie. It is the movie that popularized uh, the subgenre format for wider audiences. Most, uh, most people peg 1980s Cannibal Holocaust as kind of the first true found footage movie. After the success of The Blair Witch Project, there were a handful of found footage horror movies here and there, but it was Paranormal Activity, which came out, I believe, in, I think it was 2006 or 2007, the fall of one of those two years. That's the movie that really solidified uh, and kind of probably communicated to producers that the found footage format was, was a viable way to create a successful but cheap and as a result, profitable horror movie franchise. Paranormal Activity, of course, would replace Saw as the October tradition for a few years before it fell out of favor, but there were several other found footage movies that came out for quite a while. It was kind of the hot subgenre in horror. You had Quarantine, which was, of course, a remake of The Wreck, the Spanish Wreck series. You had smaller found footage movies like Home Movie. Um, I think The Last Broadcast is another good example. Uh, there are some good Japanese ones. For a while, found footage was kind of the hot uh, approach to horror uh, until it wasn't. It still pops up now and then. But for a while, there was there were discussions online or theories that Friday the 13th was going to jump on that bandwagon. It certainly wouldn't have been the first horror franchise, a uh, long-standing franchise, to do that. I think the most notable example off the top of my head would be uh, George A. Romero. Following on Land of the Dead, he did Diary of the Dead, which is something of an underrated uh, found footage movie and underrated even in Romero's uh, Living Dead series. It's not great. I wouldn't rank it high 
relative to some of it, the, the better examples of Romero's Living Dead movies. But there's some interesting ideas in it. The problem is for Friday the 13th is there's no real reason other than a gimmick to use the found footage format. What could be done rather than strict found footage would be to adopt the faux documentary approach that is using found footage, but jumping on that kind of true crime documentary bandwagon that's pretty popular right now. So the best example that I can think of have been the, um, so far two entries into the the series, Horror in the High Desert, and then there's Minerva Horror in the High Desert 2, which just came out this past April. Both are pretty good examples. They're, they're found footage, but done in the style of kind of a faux documentary. They're actually both quite good movies. That actually might give that kind of entryway into reintroducing audiences, particularly new young audiences, to the Friday the 13th series. So imagine, you know, a sequel where you have a documentary team wanting to make, you know, a true crime documentary about uh, the Camp Crystal Lake murders uh, and the urban legends around Jason Voorhees who show up at the old campsite. And lo and behold, they do eventually discover that the legends are all true. There are limitations to found footage. How well it works with the slasher subgenre is probably the number one issue that would, would emerge. A slasher movie needs to have inventive uh, kill, uh, death scenes. That's, that's, that's kind of one of the prerequisites. Good setups and jumps uh, and inventive uh, death scenes. And in fact, Friday the 13th really would require it. And how well you could do that using found footage, which really relies on kind of a different aesthetic to generate fear and suspense, uh, the two might not mesh. So that's probably, again, like a straight-up sequel, I would suggest found footage or even the full documentary probably is not the approach the series should take unless the movie kind of, a new sequel switched once they got to Camp Crystal Lake and Jason shows up, if it's switched from found footage to just a you know straightforward horror movie. But probably, again, that's an idea that can kind of be discarded pretty quickly. Arguably the best, or at least the most tempting route for a new Friday the 13th movie would be to, to follow suit and do what uh, Halloween did several years ago, and that's make a legacy sequel. So by a legacy sequel, what I mean is you know, a horror sequel that ignores every other sequel that preceded it and connects itself directly back to the original chapter or, or movie in the franchise. So basically wiping away any continuity, continuity characters, et cetera, that have been established since the original movie. Uh, Halloween is actually not the first of the major horror slashers to do this. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has taken this route not once, but in fact twice. The first time was in January of 2013 with the ill-fated and very bad Texas Chainsaw 3D. If you needed any kind of indication that that sequel wasn't going to be very good, dropping Massacre uh, from the title is probably your first warning sign. Uh, they jumped on the 3D bandwagon. Uh, the opening scene sets itself immediately following the events of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and what's probably the only highlight of the movie is a clever bit of casting that is Bill Mosley takes over as the cook uh, or Drayton Sawyer as he's you know eventually named in, in subsequent entries. It's a clever bit of casting. He's, if you know your horror movies, Mosley, of course, plays Chop Top in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. 
Uh, he's always a lot of fun to see in, in anything that he's in. Everything else about Texas Chainsaw 3D was pretty miserable and terrible. Um, you know, that, that's a, a subject for a future podcast episode. Uh, several years later, in fact, just last year in, I think it was February of 2022, Netflix, uh, of all places, uh, Netflix typically hasn't shown a lot of interest in horror, but they've platformed yet another Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel. Again, they, they tried to take the legacy sequel approach, and this time they, it looked like someone took notes on what went right in Halloween 2018 and tried to, to replicate it. Of course, they couldn't bring back Marilyn Burns as Sally Hardesty, uh, so they brought somebody in new for that role. But again, the idea you could tell in watching that movie was, is why don't we bring back as, as many of the original characters as we can? Uh, that sequel, of course, polarized fans. My opinion on it is that it's a great, well, it's not great, it's a decent slasher movie. Maybe it's not a great Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. And it certainly misunderstands the appeal of, of that particular series. But again, that's a subject for another podcast episode. But there is something to take away from it. And that is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre th- sequel from 2022 that streamed on Netflix misunderstood what worked about its original property and how that distinguished it from what made Halloween a good candidate for a legacy sequel. Friday the 13th would have to learn those lessons if it was going to take this route and make it work because there would be a lot of challenges. And in, in no, in, I mean, the most immediate problem is, is that Friday the 13th, unlike Halloween, which has that original chapter that was not only successful, not only critically acclaimed, but kind of established all of the essential uh, mythology that you would need to build on. Friday the 13th and its sequels are kind of a hodgepodge of ideas really that are are in place for no other reason than to to justify each subsequent sequel that was produced. So the main issue or problem you'd have to address is a legacy sequel to which movie? Are you going to make a legacy sequel to the original 1980 movie? Because Jason Voorhees does not exist in that movie. Yes, he pops up in a dream sequence at the end, but for all intents and purposes, the storyline that underlines the original Friday the 13th is that it's Pamela Voorhees who's the the killer that Jason drowned and has been dead for a number of years. So if you want Jason Voorhees in the movie, I guess you could simply make a legacy sequel that introduces the character for the first time, or you could jump in at either part two or part three. And again, the question you have to ask is, what vision of Jason do you really want in your legacy sequel? The Jason that I think the average horror fan associates with the film doesn't really turn up until halfway through part three. So that image of the goalie mask wearing killer, who's kind of an unstoppable force of nature, um, that's halfway through part three. And in fact, certain aspects of the character really aren't solidified until the final chapter, part four, or you could even argue part six, Jason lives. But the visual aesthetic of Jason, that's halfway through part three. So do you do a legacy sequel to part two where Jason looks different, but also in terms of personality and and even body language is quite a different character. So he's not kind of that robotic kind of Frankenstein's monster that's unstoppable that stalks victims very slowly. The Jason of Friday the 13th part two, who looks uh, very much like the killer from the town that dreaded sundown, 
it is more of a feral, almost kind of a man-child who is defending his, his territory, what he views as his uh, domain. So where are you going to jump in if you're going to make a legacy sequel? Which characters do you want to bring back from the original series? So do you mission mash parts of the original part two, part three, and bring back uh, Alice Hardy, the character? Do you need to bring any characters back other than Jason? Is that necessary? Because one thing that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre legacy sequels really misunderstand is that Leatherface, the character, for example, while is the character we most immediately associate with the series, is not necessarily even the most intimidating part of that franchise. That is, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in, in small part works because of that ensemble cast, that kind of bizarro cannibal family that includes in the original the, the hitchhiker, who I would argue is actually the scariest character from the first movie, and the cook. The 2003 remake, whether you liked it or not, understood that uh, and, and introduced a family of kind of bizarre characters to surround Leatherface with, limiting how much that remake had to rely on the character. Whereas both legacy sequels, the uh, 2013 and, and last year's on Netflix, put Leatherface front row and center. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the most recent legacy sequel, also misunderstood the role of Sally Hardesty from the first film. She doesn't ha hold the same place in that series kind of mythology or, or continuity that Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode does in Halloween. Um, all of the characters from the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, none of them are developed beyond their names and kind of basic character traits because the intention of that film is they're they're in, they're meant to be random victims. They're not people we're supposed to know very well. Bring back uh, the character of Sally Hardesty, which the, the legacy sequel didn't even do a good job of. Really didn't make sense for that franchise, and I'm not sure there are really any of the non-Jason characters that would make much sense to bring back into a legacy sequel, anyways. If I had to make a recommendation for a new Friday the 13th movie, I'd suggest that whoever takes over the reins of writing a screenplay and, and directing should really go to fan films for inspiration. And the, the best example, and, and fan films can be obviously of, of mixed quality, but there are a couple of good Friday the 13th fa uh, fan films. And what I'm thinking of in particular are Womp, womp Stomp films, uh, Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow, and they're apparently trying to uh, drum up the finances to do Never Hike Alone 2. These are all Friday the 13th fan films. Uh, I think they kind of vary in length between 25 to 30 minutes. They're available on YouTube. Again, it's Womp Stomp Films. If you haven't watched Never Hike Alone or Never Hike in the Snow, I would really strongly encourage you to do so. Not just if you're a Friday the 13th fan, but if you're a horror fan in general, they're quite well done. Uh, and I, I would argue they, they provide a really good kind of template, uh, template for looking at how to approach a sequel uh, or a future Friday the 13th movie. And in, you know, in part, what I think should happen or what I would do if I were writing one is worry less about things like continuity and are we a legacy sequel? Are we doing like a, a requel, somewhat of a, a remake, but not entirely? Because if you watch Never Hike Alone, what time period it takes place in, 
where the other sequels fit in, it doesn't really worry about it. It's it's literally a story about someone hiking in the woods who gets lost, stumbles upon the camp, the original Camp Crystal Lake campsite, and discovers that the the legends of Jason Voorhees are very true. There's not a lot of dialogue. It, it is literally, for the most part, one character uh, facing off against Jason, trying to survive. And so the lack of dialogue means that it's connections to other movies. So is it ignoring part two or part three? doesn't really have to address it. It takes place in an area of Camp Crystal Lake that's now kind of much more secluded because people have abandoned these, these properties and areas. You don't really have to address any issues around continuity other than the fact that it is Camp Crystal Lake and there is a Jason Voorhees. And the fan film really can just focus on delivering what it is you want to see. And part of what really works very well with Never Hike Alone is it is Jason Voorhees. It looks like Jason Voorhees. He walks like Jason Voorhees. It has uh, those bits that you would associate with the genre. It kind of excises things like the excessive TNA because, again, it's, it's one character. But it plugs into you know that kind of survival horror subgenre that is the, you know, one character or maybe a handful of characters really just fighting to survive and escape. Uh, the end of Never Hike Alone does bring back a legacy character uh, and a fun bit of a cameo that's followed up on more Never Hike Alone, uh, or I should say Never Hike in the Snow. Um, so that's kind of fun. But again, it doesn't really obsess very much or concern itself too much uh, with you know where it connects to other parts of the Friday the 13th series. And I would suggest any future movie really doesn't need to worry about it too much. Again, like I said at the start of this podcast episode, Friday the 13th uh, has never been a franchise that's been, um, you know, valorized by critics for its, you know, its intelligence or its artistic merits. Uh, it's very much a popcorn horror, horror movie franchise. We all know what we want to see when we go to see these movies, what needs to be delivered on. Uh, even the roots of Friday the 13th, it, most of the sequels were produced and released in the 1980s where a focus on the, this kind of hyper-concern about continuity and canon just didn't exist. And when you watch Never Hike Alone and, and Never Hike in the Snow, because it's not concerned about it, it really can just deliver you know, a really decent slice of what feels very much like uh, what a Friday the 13th movie could look like as a feature-length film. So the fan films could be a great source for inspiration. Again, a lot of you know what I would take away from Womp Stomp films and what they've done is you don't really need to worry too much about story and continuity. It's the tone, the aesthetics. Um, you know, that's the part you we should really be focused on. Everything else, uh, as long as you have Jason Voorhees, you can make a good Friday the Thirteenth movie. And I would suggest continuity and canon doesn't really need. To to factor in too much you know little visual kind of easter eggs uh callbacks to certain maybe movies uh, acknowledging kind of very quietly or, or subtly you know on an implicit level that these things may or may not exist in fact could be a fun way to engage long-term long-time fans and give them something to talk about and debate in, in reddit forums and on twitter and on blog posts so that's the direction i would take uh Everybody, of course, I'm sure there's lots of other ideas I haven't even considered, um, but you know that's that's the direction I would go in.
Well, thank you very much for joining me for the second episode of the Abominable Dr. Walsh podcast. We've been talking about Friday the 13th and what directions the franchise could take creatively uh, when all legal issues are fully resolved. Uh, There is some exciting news on the horizon. Uh, Franchise fans probably are aware that I believe it was either late last year or early this year, they announced a prequel series that will premiere sometime in early 2024 on the Peacock Network. Uh, that's not great news for Canadians, uh, as Peacock is, I, I don't believe, is accessible here, but good news for uh, franchise fans in general. Brian Fuller, who was responsible for reimagining uh, Hannibal Lecter as the, the three-season TV show, uh, is the creative force behind it. Victor Miller, uh, the writer of the original Friday the 13th, is, has, has a producer uh, credit with it, which is good news. Adrian King, who is the original final girl from Friday the 13th, has a recurring role. And there are even rumors swirling around that Tom Savini uh, may have some role in the movie. Of course, he provided the makeup effects for Friday the 13th and the uh, third sequel, Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. What the prequel series is going to look like, there, there's not a lot of official information, no trailer surfaced yet, but it's, it's still pretty exciting news, particularly with the creative talent connected to it right now. Before we finish off this week's podcast, uh, I do have a mini capsule review. So Natty Knox, which premiered uh, this Friday today, earlier today on several VOD platforms, uh, came out. It's a, a mix of supernatural horror slasher and a, a bit of gateway horror. It comes from director Dwight H. Little. Those of you who enjoyed Halloween Part 4, The Return of Michael Myers, uh, Little was the director of that film. He also directed the uh, first follow-up to Jennifer Lopez's Anacondas. Uh, He also directed the... uh, Most people have probably forgotten that uh, in between a a few of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, Robert Englund did a slasher reimagining a Phantom of the Opera that came out in 1989. It was supposed to have a sequel, but uh, critically and at the box office, it didn't do quite as well as the studio hoped. Little was the director of that as well. Uh, there's three uh, genre favorites that turn up in supporting roles, including Daniel Harris, Robert England himself in a, you know, Playing Against Type, and Bill Mosley of The Devil's Rejects and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 fame and many other horror film credits. The movie itself is about a washed-up B-movie horror actress who returns to her small town where she, to uh, make ends meet, uh, turns to sex work uh, and manages manages to anger all the local wives who, uh, when they demand her client list and she refuses, burn her alive in a shed. Years later, Natty Knox uh, is just a story for local teens. It's part of a a prank they play that's a variation on Nikki Nikki Nine Doors. Daniel Harris plays a single mom to a, a teen boy and a, a young daughter uh, who are struggling uh, following the, their father kind of leaving and, and starting a new fam- family, wanting nothing to do with them. When they play their Nanny Knox prank, they, they inadvertently draw the attention of a serial killer who, who may or may not have some connection to the original legend itself. Uh, Nanny Knox is like a lot of Dwight Little's work is very workmanlike. It's watchable from, from start to finish, even though it's not a major uh, studio release uh, that or didn't receive a major theatrical release. The production values are quite decent. There's a handful of good jolts and, and scares. Uh, the story itself is actually fairly unique. It's, it gets a little bit convoluted near the end. Some of the supernatural elements are, aren't really well fleshed out. 
Uh, Little, is, in my opinion, has never been really good at the suspense or, or, or scares bit. And even some of the slasher violence tends to be pretty kind of dull and unimaginative, uh, much like some of his previous work. The, the work from Harris, England, and, and Mosley, of course, is quite good. But the, the real strong point of the, of the movie itself is actually the par- performances from the young cast. Uh, they're quite likable. Uh, so there's some surprises in some of the developments you'll see in character. So it doesn't, the movie itself isn't uh, entirely predictable. Uh, so the, the gateway horror aspects, um, it, it, in some ways, it's less a slasher and closer to the vibe of uh, the screen adaptation of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It's not quite as good. It doesn't really um, nail that gateway horror vibe. Some of the material in it probably is not going to be entirely uh, well-suited for, for pre-teens or even early teens. Overall, it's a very watchable movie. It's, it falls a bit short, but there's certainly worse things you, know, you can watch on VOD platforms. Um, for next week's episode, uh, which will uh, debut on Friday, so I'll, again, I'll be trying to do an episode every Friday. I'm going to be looking at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise and why it has struggled relative to some of the other uh, you know, top, not top-tier slasher franchises. We'll have a couple of more uh, mini-capsule reviews as well. Otherwise, thank you for joining me, and I I hope you join me again next Friday.